0: If you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. This Sunday is my penultimate Sunday, meaning next to last uh, as your preaching pastor. Uh, And um, we will... uh, Have a farewell sermon, as is often called next Sunday, which has proven to be much more difficult to to write than I would have originally thought. Uh, But this morning we come to the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. Many have called this the greatest letter ever written, the greatest theological masterpiece ever written. And the, the question I would ask you is this morning how would you end a book like that? How would you end that kind of letter? It's interesting that uh, St. Augustine ended his 22 chapter, 1100 page epic work entitled The City of God by saying this, it may be too much for some, too little for others of both these groups, I ask forgiveness. Now, in terms of the length of this sermon series, I'm not sure that applies. This has been a a pretty quick one when it comes to Romans. 16 weeks, 16 chapters, usually it's somewhere between 2 and 10 years, depending on what kind of a preacher you are. But in terms of the letter to the Romans itself, perhaps uh, if you've taken it seriously, perhaps if you've not only listened to the sermons, but you've read, uh, you will have felt out of your depth as we have plunged the depths of God's own character and saving acts and seeing our own need for salvation in Christ alone. And more than that, seeing how God brought about that salvation for us. We've also seen that while salvation comes by faith alone, faith is never alone. The free grace of the gospel applied by God's Spirit calls us and moves us to live a life for Christ's glory. We've seen that as God's people, we are no longer our own and we are to live as sacrifices of worship to God. Uh, Toward that end, we seek change and to encourage it in others. And we do that by preaching Christ crucified, that sinners might be saved and saints might be sanctified. Uh, We've seen in the just past few chapters that we are to stand apart from the world and make known that our true citizenship is in heaven and not on any nation on this earth. And if we didn't get that message from Romans 13 and 14, then certainly our election cycle this year has helped push us to get that. All of this takes place not as we live our lives by ourselves, but together as God's people in something called the church. And in this last chapter, this is what Paul shows us. He shows us the church. Now, what's been interesting is that in chapters 12 through 15, he has given us commands. He's given us exhortations. He has told us, this is how you live as God's people, not just individually, but collectively as the church. And now in chapter 16, what we see is not commands, but rather the living embodiment of those commands. We, we, we see what it actually looks like, the, the, the sense and the flavor of what it actually, uh, what we can actually see as a church in real life as Paul intends. Now, if you've been reading along, reading ahead, if you know what's coming, you know chapter 16, mainly looks like a long list of names with a few comments thrown in there, here and there. It may even be one of those chapters that you skip over in your Bible reading, I was recently listening to a sermon on one of my favorite passages in Scripture, the genealogy from Jesus in Matthew 1, and the pastor made a point of saying that he spared the congregation by not reading all the names. And a part of me was just like, nails the chalkboard when I heard that. What do you mean, spared the congregation? It's God's Word! Now, listen, I understand some parts of the Bible are not going to be near the top of your list when it comes to texts you go to in times of trouble or temptation or comfort from God. I get that, right? Right? Um, there, there's parts of the holiness code about bodily discharge in Leviticus that we don't spend a lot of time doing our devotions in. I, I understand that, but Paul is pretty clear in Second Timothy that all Scripture, even the discharge parts, all Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So either it is or it isn't. Either all Scripture is going to be beneficial to us or it's not. What do we believe? Romans 16 might test your theology of Scripture, might test your belief in this verse. But actually, I think if we linger over these verses, if we think about the implications of what Paul's saying, we'll actually go away seeing Romans chapter 16 as one of the most helpful chapters, one of the most helpful parts of the Bible. So let's begin reading it. Follow along as I begin at verse 1. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Amphilatus, my beloved in Christ. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachys. greet Stachus. Greet Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsmen Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphana and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asencritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobos, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Neresis, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent and what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosapanser, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this is how Paul ends what might be the greatest work of theology ever written. He reminds us, number one, that theology isn't just for eggheads in classrooms and for dense type in textbooks. He is writing to real people who worked real everyday jobs just like you. The point is that deep, rich theology is centered on Christ and it's for the edification of his people. Paul's not writing to train pastors here. He is writing to everyday Christians in the pews that they might be built up and encouraged. And he is writing to this people that God has gathered together as the church, loving, serving, building up one another in the faith, whether in good times or in bad times, even as was hinted at in these verses. And it all happens to the glory of God. This passage naturally breaks into four sections, but since we're taking not four sermons, but one sermon, I think it'll be helpful for us to think through what we can glean from this closing by grouping the letter into two sections, two points this morning. Uh, The second half of the sermon will be shorter than the first and will flow from the final section where we see Paul's concluding doxology. We begin by lumping together the first three sections, not uh, not going straight through the text, but rather organizing what we see there topically from verses 1 through 24. And when we think about the whole passage here, is what is the church? And what we see, first of all, is that the church is shaped by the gospel. We see a church shaped by the gospel. So, what does a church shaped by the gospel look like? Well, first of all, the church is recognized by its faith in the gospel, its faith in the gospel. What happens when you put faith in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, we've already been through Romans, especially 3, 4, and 5, and we know what happens. We are put in Christ. We are united to Him. His righteous life is now counted as our own. All of our sin is counted as being on Him at the cross. And thus, through faith in Christ, we are united to Him spiritually so that the judgment we deserve as rebels and enemies against God and our sin is taken upon Christ Himself in His death. Therefore, we are no longer enemies of God because our judgment has fallen on Him. But more than that, we're not just friends. As we prayed earlier, we are adopted as children. How? Because the righteousness we need to come in close relationship with God in that way is given to us by Christ's own righteousness. Uh, this is the, the very thing that we sang. All of our sin on Him, all of His righteousness on us, so that we may come close to God. We might be saved by Him and enter into a relationship with Him. And all of that is summarized by saying, We are in Christ. Christ died for sins under God's wrath. He was buried, but he conquered death and is risen from the dead. So our life is in a living, risen Savior. So in fact, that's how Paul summarized all of the gospel. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now think about who he's writing to here in chapter 16. No less than 11 times in these verses, Paul writes to those who are in Christ or those in the Lord. That's what makes the church the church. The church is not a social club. It is not a gathering of religious people. It is not people who merely think they are Christians. The true church of God is made up of those who are in Christ, who have a genuine faith in him and have been united to him. That is the spiritual glue which binds us together. It is a shared life experience in Christ. And so here at the end, Paul talks about, verse 25, his gospel. And what he shows is that it's not a different gospel that the Romans have believed. They are all together. Or the Corinthians, he's writing from Corinth. And the greens are going both ways. He's saying we are all together in Christ. It's the same gospel that spoke of in chapter 1 that... uh, Pastor Doug read as our gospel assurance that he's been explained to the entire letter. A gospel for which he is unashamed for it is the power of God for salvation to both Jews and Gentiles. This is why by implication he says anyone preaching another gospel should be rejected. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on these verses because uh, Pastor Doug and Pastor Richard have spent a, a good deal of time talking about that as they were moved through Peter's letters. But, but Paul gives his exhortation, Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. There are lots of petty reasons that people cause divisions and lack of unity in the church. But this is the most severe. This is where we say, we don't count you as a brother and sister in Christ. We don't count you as a true believer, and you need to get away from us. You're preaching a false doctrine that will do damage to the church of God. That's the problem with bad doctrine. As J.D. Crawley says, bad doctrine always causes division. Good doctrine leads to love and unity. That's why we cherish the one true gospel and acknowledge as part of the church we have all believed in that gospel and participate in Christ together. But this brings us to the second distinction of a gospel-safe church. If good doctrine leads to love and unity, Romans 16 demonstrates that as the church, we experience love from the gospel. Love from the gospel. Not just love from God, but love from one another as a result of having our lives shaped by the gospel. Uh, From all time, not just although it seems prevalent in our culture, but in every time, in every culture, the idea of love is something that can be um, misshaped in our understanding and, and, and actions. Love can be twisted to mean little more than lust, or devalued such that it's reduced to mere sentimentality. But look at how gospel love is shown among the church. First of all, observe that Paul actively affirms his love for God's people. He says, Greet my beloved Epinatus, Epiphilatus, my beloved in the Lord, my beloved Stachis, my beloved Persis. These are people that are especially close to him, people that he has a genuine affection for in the church but think about how their relationships are described as well. Think about verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Now, first of all, you know uh, this is one of those kids where, honestly, I really wish I had another five weeks. I would just say, uh, we're going to take some more time here, but we don't have time. There's a whole backstory to Rufus here that is just incredible. Uh, Long story short, this is probably the same Rufus that's mentioned in the Gospels whose father was Simon of Cyrene, the man that the Romans conscripted to carry the cross of Christ when he was unable to do so. Um, You can read about that in Mark 15. Uh, There's a whole lot we could explore there about uh, Luke's talking with him and Paul's relationship to him. But the point here is, in this context, Rufus' mother, the wife of Simon of Cyrene, expressed such love for Paul that she treated him like... He was her own son. What did that look like specifically? We have no idea. We're not told. We'll ask her one day in heaven. But 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 here's the point. There was such love and such affection. This mother who had her own kids looked at Paul and said, I'm going to treat you like a kid. I don't know about you, but... Uh, over the course of my lifetime, there have been women like that in my life. My, my, my roommate in college, all four years were my best friends, and, and both of our mothers kind of adopted me and, and, and my roommate, and, um, and and it was wonderful. But even here in this church, among the people of God, that there have been women, and often their husbands as well, like fathers, have come alongside, and they have showed such love and affection and care for us that we felt as if we had been adopted into their family. More intensely, Paul says that love is shown sometimes even more deeply. He says, Prisca and Aquila once risked their necks for his life. Verse 3, Prisca is a shortened form of Priscilla, like Tom for Thomas, or in this case, Lizzie for Elizabeth. So this is the same Priscilla and Aquila that we see in Acts. Now, once again, we have no idea about the specifics of the time and place, but such was their love for Paul. They literally risked their lives for him. Literally death was on the line and their care and love for Paul. Didn't Jesus say that there was no greater love than that of a friend who'll be willing to lay down his life for them? We don't have time to say a whole lot more, but think about the back and forth there is in this passage. People in Corinth and in other places are greeting those in Rome and vice versa. There's mentions of how uh, how believers uh, are loving and serving one another, what they've done for Paul and others. We even have the the final kind of commendation that that would have made perfect sense for them to greet one another with a holy kiss because it was a sign of affection among them. Now, that being said, after the service today, I don't want to see a kissing line at the back of the church, okay? Uh, I'm not into that, all right? Uh, In part because that would have been a culturally appropriate sign of affection, uh, you can ask uh, Micah after, after church today, but one of the culturally appropriate signs of affection when we were in Africa among the Tamagec culture was for men to hold hands. And I had been there several times. I had known that. But one of the guys that I got to know really well felt felt such affection for me, even as an unbeliever, that as we were walking around, he said, hey, John, I want you to come see something. And he grabbed my hand, and here we are, hand in hand, walking down the street. I've never walked hand in hand with another man before. Uh, it was a little odd. But for him, it was a great sign of affection, d- despite the the, 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 s- the stickers and the, and the things going on with the Skidmore boys behind me. Um, for, for them, the, the kind of... On, on the cheek was a great cultural expression of of love and affection. Uh, in, in a in a British modern um, kind of paraphrase, uh, uh, the I can't think of the guy's name at the moment, but he says, "Greet one another with a hearty handshake." You know, so figure out whatever the appropriate culture expression is. The point is. They are, they are living a life of love for one another and it was seen just even in the way that they would greet each other at the church. We're seeing here on display the kind of love that Christ commanded us to have for one another as his people. And it's the kind of love that we should be praying for and striving after even today because it's the mark of a true and faithful church church brings from faith in the gospel. It is marked by love from the gospel. And third, the church is committed to service for the gospel. Service for the gospel. In addition to Paul himself, we see mentioned the husband and wife, Andronicus and Junia mentioned in verse 7. Paul calls them apostles. But I don't think we should take this in the same sense that Paul was an apostle. Uh, the, apostle, the word apostle simply means one who is sent out. It's the word that Jesus uses for everyday disciples in, in Luke chapter 10 who were sent off in preaching ministry. It's also the word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians to describe those believers who went out from among the Gentile churches that accompanied the offering that he collected for the Jewish believers undergoing a famine. And so the point is, um, you have to define words based on context. And what we see here are two missionaries being sent out by the church. They were living in service to the gospel. And that kind of service or ministry is the clearest in these verses by the use of the phrase fellow worker. And we see it all over the place. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ. Verses 6 and 9, greet Mary, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Verse 12, Paul mentions Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord as, his, as two sisters, Tryphana and Tryphosa, possibly even twins, who were workers in gospel ministry. And in verse 21, greetings go the other way. And Paul says, Timothy, my fellow worker greets you. The, the point here that I'm making is this. Christian service, Christian ministry is not limited to the professionals. It's not limited to those who get a paycheck. In fact, um, if that's what it is, not much is going to get done. Instead... What we see here is that ministry service is something shared by all of God's people. Every believer is meant to be a partner, a fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the bread and butter of Christian ministry. Everyone's called to that. We've said it a hundred times before, and we'll probably, it'll probably be said a hundred times after I'm gone. Disciples are called to make Disciples. If you're not involved in disciple-making, you're not a good disciple. You're not a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that as well as his apostles. At the same time, that's not all the ministry there is. There is the kind of clear, open your mouth, share the gospel kind of disciple-making, but there are also ministries that support and undergird the ministry of disciple-making. So look what we see here. Some serve through generously giving of their wealth. Phoebe was called a patron of many and of Paul. Through whatever means, God has blessed her with wealth, and she knew that she wasn't just blessed to have more. God did not, God did not bring finances into her life above and beyond her peers so that she could just sit on a big pile like Scrooge McDuck and just go swimming through the, the Roman coinage. That wasn't the point. She was blessed in order to be a blessing to others. Specifically, she supports Paul and many others in gospel ministry. And we're going to come back to Phoebe in a few minutes, but consider Gaius in verse 23. Remember, Paul is writing from the city of Corinth and he says, Gaius, who was host to me, the whole church greets you. Gaius is hosting Paul. He is allowing Paul to stay at his house while he is in Corinth, but he is also host to the whole church. Now, some of said, well, that means the church at Corinth was a really small church. Well, maybe. doesn't seem like that from the letters though. So there's a lot of activity going on in Corinth, a lot of people there. So the question is, how is he hosting the church? I mean, has Gaius just got the Roman equivalent of a mansion? Does he just have some big patio they're gathering on? Is he renting out of space? We have no idea. But his hospitality, his generosity is simply a practical expression of love and care and service to God's people and God's mission. And when we think about that, we just ask, when's the last time you've had somebody over let alone a Christian missionary stay with you for an extended period of time? When's the last time you've hosted a community group? Hospitality is one, of the, um, is one of the clearest, most practical ways of serving God and His church. Perhaps my favorite example of service here comes in verse 23. Perhaps it caught your ear when we read it. Um, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. What? I thought Paul wrote this letter. Who's this Tertius dude, right? Did you think that? Well, hopefully you didn't, because we've talked before that Paul, even though he is the author of the letter, more than likely they're not actually write out the letter. There were professional secretaries called uh, an amanuensis that would be hired on, uh, known for their legible scrawl and everything else, being able to to, to keep margins well and, and have everything nice and tight. He would have been actually the one, as Paul is speaking, dictating the letter, writing it down. So as Paul takes a breath, he scribbles in there, I, Tersias, you wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And then Paul starts talking again, and it keeps going, right? right? Hopefully he asked Paul. I assume he asked Paul. But either way, the point is, here's this guy that's being used by God in part to give us the letter to the Romans. God took the nat- Tertius took the natural skills and abilities that he had, probably how he earned his living, and he leveraged those for the advance of the gospel. He leveraged that. He utilized that, not just for personal gain, but to serve God and his people. Likewise for us, though all of us are called to be involved in gospel ministry. Some of you have unique skills and giftings that can be used either in direct gospel ministry or to undergird gospel ministry. Some can teach, others can administrate. Might be cleaning, might be building, might be repairing, might be hosting, driving, singing, baking. We are all called to use our talents and abilities and positions in life to serve God for the gospel. And let's be clear. We understand there are times when serving is not easy. Serving takes place in ways because we live in a world with people and we all have different preferences and everything else. It's not always going to be convenient. It's not always going to be what we want. The question is whether or not we're going to let our ego get in the way of serving. Will we let our preferences dominate our lives? If so, then we trivialize what God has given us and undermine the importance of the gospel being advanced. The last characteristic that we see of a gospel-shaped church is this equality in the gospel. Equality in the gospel. One of the astonishing things about Christianity in the first century was the equal footing everyone had at the cross and therefore in the church. When you read the New Testament carefully, you'll see the apostles writing strong condemnations on those who would lose their focus and begin to give preferential treatment to one group or another. The equality that we see in the gospel is displayed here in three ways. First, we see equality between Jews and Gentiles, between Jews and Gentiles. Some people mentioned in this list are identified as Paul Paul's kinsmen. That's his way of saying they're fellow Jews. They, ethnically, we are from the same people. Some of them, like Androni- uh, Andronicus and Junia, were there in Rome, and others, like Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, were traveling with Paul. These are these guys are and and, and woman, are listed among. Right alongside the other Gentiles in these verses, with no difference mentioned between their love and their service. So Paul has been writing to talk about the unity of Jews and Gentiles, and here he demonstrates just by the way he talks about these believers, there is an essential equality there. There are no there's no place for ethnic division in the gospel. More than that, we see equality between the poor and the wealthy. The poor and the wealthy. Actually, interestingly enough, from what we know of first century culture, most of the people in this list have names that mark them out as Gentile slaves or those that perhaps were now freedmen or freedwomen and had previously been slaves. So, in the same breath that Paul mentions Erratus, the city treasurer, that seems like an important job for Rome, he also mentions the believers who also served the family of Aristobulus and those who belonged to the family of Narcissus. We know Aristobulus, he's not a Christian. But his house is full of Christian servants and slaves. This guy's related to the family of Caesar. And what's interesting is that though Christianity was exploding among the saved class, when Paul is writing this in the first century, 300 years later, we have the ruler of the Roman Empire, a Christian. And so what do we see here? But once again, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor or you're slave or free. There is equality in Christ. They're gathering together, sitting side by side, worshiping their risen Savior. Probably for people today, what is most significant in these final verses demonstrate that the gospel gives equality among men and women. There's equality among men and women. Nine of the 26 people mentioned in this chapter are women. That that would have been very unusual given the male-dominated world in the first century, not just among the Jewish people, but among the, the Gentiles as well. The chapter, in fact, opens with Paul commending to the Roman church, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincreia. Now, the word servant here is actually the same word from which we get the word deacon. And some debate, was she an actual deacon at the church in Corinth? Or was that just a generic term for the fact that she was well known as a servant there? Well, I think for at least two reasons directly in this text, I think it does point to the fact that uh, Phoebe was a deacon in the church. First of all, the masculine form of the word is used here. If it was just an adjective describing her, uh, normally, grammatically, it would be feminine since her name is feminine. So it points to the fact that a formal title is in mind here rather than just a descriptor. Second, The phrase seems more formal rather than generic because a specific church is mentioned. She's not just a servant of the church. not just someone who serves the church. She is specifically a servant of the church at Sincrea. And so, again, I think that it's suggesting a position that would have been formally recognized in the church. Phoebe was uh, a deacon at Sincrea. But regardless of what you think about those things, if you're convinced or not convinced, what is more significant is that scholars almost universally agree she is mentioned first and told to be well regarded because she is the one who is carrying the physical letter that Paul has written and is delivering it to the leaders at the church in Rome. See, how do we know that from the text? We actually don't know it from the text, other than the fact that the name is first. But what we have are early copies of Romans that have a little notation at the bottom, a little historical footnote that says, Phoebe was the one who bore this letter from Paul to the church at Rome. It doesn't show up in all of them. It gets lost in some of the later ones. But there's enough evidence there to think about the amazing privilege for anyone, let alone a woman in the first century, to be the one who would literally carry the words of Paul, perhaps even be the one privileged to read them to the church at Rome for the first time. Now, I don't want to lessen the point, but we do need to make a caveat, because unlike what we hear in society, equality, the the kind of equality that we're talking about, particularly between men and women, doesn't mean that all differences are gone. That's a modern mistake. Even the most basic physiological differences are sometimes ignored today, but that's not God's design. That's not part of his good design for men and women, male and female. He didn't create an androgynous species that, that, that gender doesn't matter. No, gender is a reflection of God himself. We are made in the image of God. So somehow male and female are essential aspects of that reflection and should not, the water should not be muddied in our understanding of them. Likewise, God has designed basic roles for men and women in marriage and the church. So that although women cannot serve as elders in a local church, we need to remind ourselves, neither can all men. It's not just a gender thing. Not all men, there's a special calling that takes place. So the fact that women cannot serve as elders, number one, doesn't mean, depending on how your church is structured, uh, they can't serve as deacons, but it should not also detract from the essential equality in our minds that they experience, nor should it lessen the reality that there are plenty of ways that women can serve in churches and in ministry." Don't miss the main point that is demonstrated here. Unlike other religions at that time and even many religions now, all people are equal in worth before God and therefore welcome in the body of Christ. Now as we think about that brief snapshot, we we didn't get to all the names, um, but as we think about that, that brief snapshot about that picture of how Paul describes the life of the church, the burning question we need to ask ourselves is this, is that your experience of church? If so, if not, why not? Do you have these kinds of relationships? Do you have this sense of community with the church? Do your friendships run deep like this? Do you experience love and service with others in a common faith in Christ? Do you know how believers in this room, as well as in other churches and maybe even other countries, are doing spiritually? Do you know their past victories and their current needs? If not, why not? what's holding you back right now from having that kind of relationship, that kind of experience with church? This is not meant to be an optional extra, like, yes, I want the six-disc CD player put in the car. No, this is Paul's general expectations for how Christians are going to live. Lincoln Duncan is right when he says, the communion of saints is not some idealistic dream. It is as expected, a practical reality in the body of Christ. And Romans chapter 16 proves that it was something experienced. So let me just encourage you that if you feel like that's not reflective of your experience at church, don't wait for someone else to make it part of your experience. Today, start advancing in in terms of your relationships. Begin a conversation with someone before you leave about their spiritual life. Ask, if nothing else, ask them, how did you come to faith in Christ? Ask their testimony. And then in the coming days and weeks, plan to get together for coffee and, and just get together with people and talk with them. Get involved in their lives, take an interest in what's happening there. Consider gathering with a few people to spend some time talking about the Sunday sermon or just what you're reading the Bible that week. And spend 15 minutes praying for each other. You do on your lunch break, take an hour, take 45 minutes, meet up somewhere close by. If you're not in a community group, get in one. It doesn't matter if they're in the middle of a study. It doesn't matter if they're beginning a study. And it just unite with God's people. Begin sharing life with them in the kind of ways that are demonstrated here in this chapter. Romans 16 teaches us that this is what it looks like to be the church. We see a church that's shaped by the gospel, but also Paul ends by showing the church sustained by God. The church sustained by God. Similar to what we saw at the end of chapter 11, Paul closes this letter with a doxology. Now this is different from a benediction. The benediction came earlier when he said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That is his prayer, his wish for God's blessing to be on the church. But in these last few verses, we see a doxology and that runs the opposite direction. It's a statement of blessing, of praise, of adoration from the church back to God. As a doxology, these verses not only give us language with which to praise God, but explain reasons why we should praise God. Namely, that God sustains His people, the church. How does He do that? First, He does that by giving us strength. We receive strength from God. Strength from God. Now Now, to Him who is able, able to do what? Able to strengthen you. Now, that should be encouraging if you are one of God's people here. That should be encouraging for you to hear because we live with the threat of not being strengthened, of not standing, of not finishing well every day. Every moment of our life, every decision that we make is either leading us on a path that is farther away from faithfulness to God or it is leading us on a path towards true faithfulness in God. Uh, Life is very much, if you were like me, a child of the 80s, uh, or had a gift uh, for nostalgia of all things, it was the choose your own adventure books. And, and you, you, you start with a chapter and you make a decision, okay? And, and it, that's going to take you in one direction. From there, then you have two more decisions and you're branching off. And either uh, the book ends really quickly because you chose poorly or you get to the end of the book triumphant. I'll never forget one of my favorite ones was a James Bond book, choose your own adventure, James Bond. And so I remember right at the beginning, some lady steals something, she's taken off in your car, That's a convertible, and it says, uh, do you try to land on the hood, grab onto the windshield and stop her, or do you dive into the seat next to her? And I thought, that's uh, probably safer to do the windshield. Guess what? It was safer, and I died, because Bond doesn't do anything safe. He went right down to the seat, pulled the gun, and that was it. So what did I have to do? I had to go back and make the next decision. We don't get do-overs like that in the Christian life. We don't get to just flip back the pages. Yes, we can have repentance and faith, but sometimes the damage is done and it hurts and it's lasting. And so in the smallest of things, I have nothing in my schedule. Am I going to take one Saturday a month and get up and go pray with God's people? It seems like a small decision, but multiply month after month after month after month after month, it can have great dividends, great gains from a simple decision? Am I going to get up a little bit early before work and open up God's Word and ask God to show me something that will encourage my heart, that will convict me of sin, that will sustain me throughout the day? You know, what we want to have happen is to end whether it is a slow death in a hospital bed or whether it's a a quick death in some kind of accident or, or tragedy. We want to be able to finish our life before God, our spiritual life like those Marines on Iwo Jima, raising high that banner of Christ in triumph and saying, I, by God's grace, was faithful to the end. Therefore, How encouraging is it that Paul says, God is able to strengthen you for that. God is able to make you to stand firm. He is able to bring you home safely. And how does he do that? How is he going to strengthen you? God will strengthen his people, what? According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Paul bookends the opening comments in Romans about the gospel, now with this closing about the gospel. In chapter 1 verse 16, which we heard twice now today, it's the power of God for salvation. Paul's emphasis is on the bringing us to faith. Here it's on the sustaining of our faith, the finishing of our faith. The gospel is powerful enough enough to bring us all the way home. So, you wonder why do we shape our songs and our services and our sermons around the gospel week in and week out? Why do we teach classes on the content of the gospel and how to share the gospel? Why do we tell you to try and find ways to preach the gospel to yourself? You're reminded that. This is it. It's not just some trendy thing. It's not just some fad or something that, that we've got to burr up in our saddle about. You can't get past the gospel of Christ, friends. It is the message that brings you into salvation and is the message that's going to finish out your salvation. It's the means by which God continually strengthens us to be faithful. And here Paul wants to give us confidence in this gospel message. He says that this gospel is preached according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed unto the prophetic writings and made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. Why should you have confidence in the gospel to give you strength? Because it comes from the eternal God. It's not something people made up. Moreover, it was revealed in the word of God, executed in history by the plan of God. It is something that we can have our confidence in. It is rooted both in eternity and history. It's a divine message for a global human need. It's exactly what we need. The truths of the gospel, therefore, are relevant and reliable. We need not wonder or waver in our confidence regarding Christ's saving work. That work preached in the gospel establishes us with God and strengthens us for obedience to Him. And that's the second truth that we need to see. The spiritual strengthening of the gospel should be seen in our obedience to God, our obedience to God. If God is sustaining us, this is what it's going to look like. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Christ, why? To bring about the obedience of faith. Not long ago, I was having a conversation with a young man in another church after I preached. He had some questions about uh, discernment, and he was was pressing in on something that is sometimes called lordship salvation, which just comes out of of, of Romans chapter 10, that we confess Jesus is Lord and are therefore saved. The idea, though, that he uh, bucked against, kicked against, was that there was anything else that could possibly be expected in the Christian life other than simple, bare, naked faith in Jesus. In other words, even saying repentance and faith was wrong. So that the gospel is essentially fire insurance. And though it is disrespectful and dishonoring to Christ, it does not matter how you live your life. As long as at some point you put faith in Jesus, you're okay. And I said, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. Yes, when it comes to receiving salvation, it is is not our obedience that saves us. It is Christ that saves us. But embedded in faith, trusting Him is repentance. Number one, because that's what Jesus preached. The very first sermon, repent and believe in the gospel. Because believing God inherently means not believing other things. Do you get that? We, We go through our life trusting in a lot of things. Education and wealth and politics and family. But when we trust God, we are inherently saying, I'm not trusting those things anymore. I'm trusting God. Therefore, we are turning away. We are repenting from that. And, and, and what, what Paul says, what Jesus says, and places so numerous people have written entire books on it over and over and over again is that if you have placed genuine saving faith in Christ, the fruit of that faith is obedience. Therefore, if there is no obedience, there was no real faith. If there's no fruit from the tree, the tree is not healthy. It's not growing. It's not alive. It's dead. There's something wrong with it. That's what Paul says is helping us to see here. True gospel belief produces obedience. That's why it's called the obedience of faith. Not obedience that saves, Christ saves, but those who are saved will obey. It is the natural result. Paul says that this is God's plan for the nations. Isn't that what he said? To produce the obedience of faith among all the nations of the world. And so John Piper helpfully says, if there is any people group on planet earth where faith in Christ is not producing conformity to Christ, God's aim for the gospel is not complete. It's not complete. So so what does that obedience look like, you might ask? Well, just go back and read chapter 12 to get started. Do you remember what Paul says there? let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I think there's enough there to get us going, right? To measure our lives, whether or not we're being obedient, to give us something to aim for. And I'll say this as we end this, don't let anyone ever tell you That it's legalism or legalistic to read a list of commands like that in the New Testament and measure your life by them or seek to obey them. It's not legalistic. It's the desire to be obedient. That's what God is seeking to produce in us. When we fail, do we lose salvation? Absolutely not. That's not the point. Our Our salvation is not based on our obedience. Obedience is the fruit of our salvation. And so we're constantly aiming to let God complete the work that He has begun. And what is the end result of that work? It's the glory of God. That's the final thing that we see, the glory of God. In some ways, verses 25 through 26 are a parenthesis to describe the hymn at the beginning of the doxology, God. And Paul finally gets to what he was saying at the end. Why does God save by the gospel? Why does He shape His people? Why does He sustain us as a church? Now to Him, who? To the only wise God, God verse 27, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You'll notice that God is wise and should be glorified forever through Christ. So when we think about connecting those things together, we we can ask this question, why should God receive glory? And we've got a million, billion reasons in the Bible. But here it's because His wisdom is revealed in the gospel of Christ. The Puritan Stephen Charnock wrote a book on the attributes and existence of God. It's about like this, and he didn't even finish it before he died. And there's 100 pages given over just to the wisdom of God in that book. But right at the outset, here's what he says. No man or angel can imagine how two natures so distant as the divine and the human should be united how the same person should be criminal and righteous, how a just God should have a satisfaction and a sinful man, a justification, how the sin should be punished and the sinner saved. In other words, left to our own wisdom, the gospel is unfathomable. I mean, you think about every human attempt at religion. What does it involve? Us doing something to make ourselves acceptable to God. Every single one. Even if it's an Eastern religion where it's very vague and philosophical, we are seeking to have to do something for ourselves that will accomplish some goal at the end. Christianity is the exact opposite. God has done it all. I I mean, he did the most unbelievable thing. He sent his own son, not just as God, but to take on flesh and become fully God and fully man and then to offer himself as a sacrifice in our place. Mere mud beans from the creation of the world rather than the eternal God. That's how he chose to save us. It is unfathomable. It displays the wisdom of God in that, at least in God's mind, that's the only way it could have happened. It was the perfect way. And therefore we give him glory and praise and honor for doing it. The gospel reveals his infinite wisdom and should produce within us the desire to praise him and give him glory for it. As we come to the end of this series on Romans, I can't think of a better series to end my time on as pastor of this church, we've unpacked the glories of the gospel across time, seeing the unfolding of God's plan for the world and for us here today. And even as we think about this last chapter, as I was preparing and thinking about the last 13 and a half years, there was, there was joy in my heart to think about what it means to be a church shaped by the gospel and to know that at various times and in various ways, everything that, that we've seen in this passage has been my experience here at Crossway. See the experience of our family and we have been thankful for it. But my earnest desire and prayer is that we don't just look to the past and be satisfied. We look to the future. We continue to be the church. We continue to strive to be the people that God wants us to be. So, so don't let your preferences or your agendas attempt you to bring division to this body. Don't let spiritual laziness keep you at arm's length from devoting yourself wholly to this community of God that He desires for you. Don't let pride or misplaced priorities prevent you from loving and serving, even sacrificially in ministry, to and with this body. Rather like living sacrifices, offering the entirety of our lives in worship. Let us bow the knee to Christ in humble reverence, being shaped by the gospel and sustained by God our Father so that we can show this city and all the nations what the church should be. To God's glory, not ours. Father, we're thankful for this letter to the Romans. God, we're thankful for the insight and the faith and the wisdom that came from the, the endless fount that is your own mind and yet was revealed to the Apostle Paul for a specific time and place, and yet still has relevance and importance and value for us in this letter because it wasn't just Paul's words, God. It was and is and will forever be your word to your people. God, we are thankful for that word, and we pray that we don't simply now shrug our shoulders and move on to the next thing. But, Father, as we reflect back, not just on this morning, though especially this morning, but on the entirety of the letter, God, may our lives be changed as we've seen this exposition and application of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, in every way possible, help us to be and to live and to love and serve as the church for your glory alone. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.